0: My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And we are in the thick of it with purity culture. We are uh, in our second week of our series, Pure Trash, putting purity culture where it belongs, where we are unpacking a lot of the cultural baggage we have um, created and cultivated by the church mostly around sexuality and purity. Now, I... uh, I love today's topic, which is purity and patriarchy. And I got really excited when I heard what the kind of precursor song was. We always get a little preview of the sermon from the post-passing of the peace song. Um, Because there is so much here about property and ownership. Now, Patriarchy and purity culture are really, really intertwined. And I, there is so much here, right? There's even stuff about divorce and stuff that's been taken in all kinds of other directions by our culture. And we're going to get into as much of it as we can before I see the, the alert on the screen back there telling me I've talked for too, too long and I need to sit down, which is what they do when I don't shut up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you as much as I can here. And I want to give you a solid biblical understanding, right? I don't want to just sit up here and unpack kind of the experiences alone. I want to give you a biblical foundation for understanding where some of these really toxic ideas came from, how people who are supporting them are leaning on a misinterpretation of the text to, to give them credibility when they are spewing lies, and how we as faithful people following Jesus and the scriptures can understand the radical egalitarian mutuality commanded by Jesus in romantic, sexual, and marriage relationships. Now, before we get into the text, I want to just say that like, when we're talking about patriarchy, I, it, can be, it can be really hard to know where to place ourselves in that conversation. Because honestly, we have all, people of all genders, have been victimized by patriarchy, which is a hierarchical system that positions certain people and and locks folks into a a preordained set of expectations. Now, in addition to that, many folks have been victimized by misogyny, which is hatred um, and degradation directed towards women and AFABs. And in addition to that, some have also been victimized by racialized misogyny and or misogynoir where racism and anti-blackness kind of intertwine with sexism uh, to harm specifically black women and uh, uh, non-black women of color. So I want to give broad latitude in this conversation for grief, for rage for just like allowing things to bubble up in you as you attend to what you've experienced in your life, wherever you fall in that map of harm. And I want you to just hold space to the extent that you can to acknowledge what you've been through. And if you need to take space, if you need to go get a, a, get a drink of water, go to the bathroom, whatever, Like I want you to listen to your body about that. And, I think it can be extremely easy to exempt ourselves from these conversations when we're talking about where the harm comes from. To either say, I am only a victim of this, or especially for men to say, how can other men be that way? This is a self-protective mechanism that we have because it's sort of unbearable to think that we've been a part of something that has harmed people we love or harmed us. And I think this conversation about, like, where do I fall in this and how do I hold space for my participation, my culpability, is something we're starting to have a conversation about in terms of white supremacy, right? To say, like, hey, especially white folks, like, what is our location in upholding white supremacy? But honestly, it's true of all systems of oppression. That systemic oppression is a system, you know... Anything that's systemic is something that that we are a part of. And so in systems theory, we all have a role to play, right? In any given system, we all have a role. And so we have to self-examine. This is not the same as self-flagellating. This is not the same as saying I'm a terrible person. This is about saying, what is my role? How have I been upholding this? What's my role in the system? How do I resist that role and undermine systemic oppression, systemic patriarchy. So in order to prepare ourselves for this difficult work, I want to resource us in our bodies because as we talked about last week, our bodies are good, our bodies are holy, our bodies are powerful, and God speaks to us through our flesh. And so I want folks to to shift around in your seat, just become a little more aware of your body wherever you are, and resource your body, whatever that means to you. If that means kind of rolling your shoulders back or moving your neck around, that's great. If it means rooting your feet on the ground, you can do that. And I want everyone to try and take a really thoughtful breath in and out. Our bodies are beautiful and holy and they have equipped us to do the difficult work of unpacking systemic oppression. All right, you ready to get into it? All right, here we go. Now, oh, one more caveat. I got so many caveats. This conversation is extremely binary. And the reason that's true is because in the text there's there's a presumption of only two genders. And I want us to be able to give the breadth of that conversation what it deserves in terms of really unpacking what this means for men and for women. Um, There's not a lot of nuance in the text, but we know here that men means lots of things, women means lots of things, and neither of those categories cover everything. And so I wanna just acknowledge, as a non-binary person myself, that there are people of all genders in this room and in this conversation, and I believe that uh, queerphobia, transphobia, um, hatred towards uh, gender non-conforming people and non-binary people originates in large part in this conversation about hierarchy and patriarchy. That we are all uh, expected to follow these preordained binary roles that are prohibitive even to gender expansive cis people and that, that if we if we want to unpack all of it, we've got to unpack here. So I'm going to be using a lot of binary language. But getting into the binary language of patriarchy and purity culture. Who here has turned, heard of the word helpmate? All right. For a second, everybody hesitated and I was like, "Ooh, you've come out you know, unscathed. Not so. All right. So some of you, <laughs> some of you know about the word helpmate. I'm about to orient the rest of you. Um, there are some pretty troubling things um, in the scriptures that, that purity culture leans on, And a lot of it um, is it, it's this logic, right, that says uh, basically three things. The logic of, of patriarchy in, uh, that is interpreted out of and into the, the Hebrew scriptures is that, one, women are naturally subservient to men. Two, women are uniquely capable of committing sexual sin. And three, women are property. Real big bummers all around. (sighs) But there are a lot of scriptures that can seem very convincing on their face to, to uphold these arguments. And that's why folks will come at you with scripture and verse and say, like, oh, well, obviously, scripture is clear. That's one of Cameron's favorite fake phrases. Scripture is clear. It's not clear. It's not clear about much of anything, um, but, but we're going to get into why. So in the beginning, the human, God made human beings. And one of the things that God did when Adam was in the garden by himself, actually pre-gender, this was kind of a a gender neutral or or maybe gender expansive, we don't know, but the first human being, God said, it's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to make you a companion, a partner. And in this way, I believe that the scriptures established that God created a mutuality to say, you need an equal. Because God tried to give uh, Adam friends who he was going to subordinate, right? God tried to say, like, just hang out with the animals. You're in charge, Um, and and it didn't work. God said, you need someone who is your equal, so I'll make you an equal. Now, when God made this equal, now we have Adam and Eve, and the scriptures call Eve Azer, E-Z-E-R. It's a Hebrew word that has often been translated as helper, helpmate, or the weirdest one to me, helpmeet which I don't think means anything else in any other context. Um, but uh, but this, this conversation, oh, women are helpers to men, right? You can see how that would get really condescending really, really quickly. Interestingly, that word "azer" helper, is only used outside of that context pretty much exclusively to describe God. God is a helper. In Exodus, the God of my fathers who was my helper, my azer. Uh, In the Psalms, God is the helper of the orphans. The Lord is with me. God is my helper. And so we see in the scriptures that Eve is like God to Adam. And we could come to a very different kind of hierarchical hierarchical conclusion if we really wanted to lean on a shallow reading of the text as, uh, as patriarchal opponents do right? But instead they say, oh, Adam was created in the image of God and Eve a lesser extension underneath Adam. And this is blatantly unbiblical because we see that Eve as a helper is as God to Adam. Now we don't believe that Eve is then superior. We believe they are mutually equal to one another. And some folks have suggested that a a better translation of the word "azer" would be companion, someone who is with the way God is with us the way that God intends partnered commitments to be helpers to one another, to create companionship, and not not in a way that is gendered. Now, this is Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. This is the way things ought to be. But Genesis describes a shift, a shift after the introduction of sin, sin which is separation and harm and anything that causes a relationship to decay God describes, the scriptures describe what happens then, including all kinds of hardship and toil and death. And one of the descriptions is that a woman's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Again, those promoting purity culture and patriarchy use this as evidence, oh, this is the divine order of things, when in fact it is explicitly the disorder of things. It is the way things have fallen into disrepair that a mutual, partnered, companion relationship falls into domination through a male uh, husband ruling over a woman as his wife. This is a description of sin. This is evidence of sin in the world. But that's conveniently overlooked by those who want to just say, like, oh, no, this is, supposed to, this is supposed, to be, it's supposed to be like that. Now, there is also, then, this assumption that women were property. And that, too, can be easily supported by a shallow reading of the Hebrew Scriptures. The most obvious is in the Ten Commandments. One of them says, Do not covet your neighbor's property. And the property listed include your house, your ox, your donkey, your wife. It is clear from that that women are tossed in with the property that is owned by a man who is the head of household. This would have been extremely common in cultures nearby at that time, that there was a man who was a head of household. He had unlimited power to do whatever he wanted, and anyone else in his household, whether it was uh, a wife or wives, children, um, servants, or people who were enslaved to him, would be subject to that man's authority. And this is why marriage then, in the law, in Mosaic law, becomes a transfer of property. A woman is first a child of a man, owned by him as property, who has, honestly, a a financial potential because she can be married off as a political kind of maneuver or um, bought for marriage for a price. And then when that marriage happens, the deed, so to speak, is transferred to this woman's husband. And now she becomes a wife. And so we see in the Hebrew Scriptures an an assumption um, that that women were then sort of transitional property. Similarly, in terms of, of women being solely capable of sexual sin, adultery was property law. This We think about adultery in such modern terms as a violation of a loving relationship. And yet, in this context, adultery was actually about property. It was about how, uh, how women as property of men could be violated because it was really sort of like sole ownership usage rights. It was like, oh, this woman is my property and I get to use her how I want, but if you use her, or if she engages in some activity that violates my exclusive rights. That is a property violation. Miguel de la Torre um, in A Lily Among Thorns, which is uh, a little outdated at this point, but also just excellent early liberation theology around um, sexuality and gender, um, and like changed my whole worldview um, like 15 years ago. Um, Miguel de la Torre Torre says, do you ever wonder how the woman caught in the act of adultery was alone? Like, if she was caught in the act of adultery, it really feels like there should have been someone else there with her. But the answer was, if she was uh, committing adultery, so to speak, with a man, he would have just walked on by. She was the one who was responsible. She had committed the sin. And by that interpretation of the law, she was the only one who had violated the commandment around adultery. Because it's about men's exclusive rights to his property and it threatens the lineage of male children. So women were then responsible for upholding fidelity, so to speak, but in a property context, not in a loving relationship. And the consequences were wild. Women engaged in so-called adultery were put to death. But men could do whatever they wanted as long as they didn't violate another man's claim. And men could have as many wives or concubines as he wanted, um, engage in sex work, uh, all these things were considered normal. And in this context, non-monogamy was not about mutuality and consent, but the whims of one man and the way all the women around him were made to fulfill his needs and desires. Jesus has a problem with this. Jesus has a huge problem with this, has a problem with the culture, has a problem with the way the law has been abused to uphold this culture. Now, Jesus is not the only one who has a problem with this, and it's important to know uh, and acknowledge that there are other Jewish scholars since the time of Jesus and well beyond who have dealt with this in other ways. So it's not, it's not that this is a Jewish understanding, so much as a historical interpretation located in the culture that Jesus was teaching in. And I want to show you how Jesus radicalized all of this, flipped all of it on its head. Because this is some wild, like, handmaid's tale, crazy, scary nonsense, right? Like, this is the kind of stuff that Islamophobic Westerners want us to imagine when when they say phrases like Sharia law. This is the kind of ancient world stuff that's hard to imagine and feels so otherworldly, right? Right? except that purity culture is steeped in every angle of this logic. Purity culture teaches the lies that women are naturally subservient to men, that women are uniquely capable of committing sexual sin, and that women essentially are property to their fathers and husbands. So I want to go through those one by one. Women as naturally subservient to men. We've, we've kind of covered the beginning of this, right? They go back with this really shallow interpretation of helper and azer. They lean on that fallen state to say that this is the order of things. And we've already dispro- disproved that part biblically. But they go back to it and they say, no, no, no. God has a plan. It's for, it's for men and women to complement each other. And like for me, this originally kind of brought up ideas of like Adam and Eve in the garden being like, hey, Eve, you're such a good rollerblader. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Adam. You know, you make an an amazing Garden of Eden fruit salad. But it turns out that's not what they mean by (laughs) complementarian. They don't mean complement each other in that way at all. They mean same but different. They mean same in worth, equal in value, but somehow different. If this doesn't bring up separate but equal vibes, I don't know what does. Like this kind of logic that says, oh, yeah, you are the same, but you're supposed to do different things and one of you is supposed to be in charge. Oh, you're both equally worthy, equally gifted, but differently, and one of you is allowed to make decisions and the other one isn't. Like that's pretty highly suspect, isn't it? And so those compliments start to take on a really different tone. Adam, you're so strong and masculine and smart. Eve, you're so soft and kind and sweet. Which, like, whatever, those are nice things. But if those are the only things you're allowed to be, that's when we get into problems. And already we actually see how men, as well, lose out in patriarchy. Men are allowed to be strong, and smart, and powerful, but they're not allowed to be sensitive, and gentle, and truly supported by a partner. And of course, women are not allowed to be strong, or smart, or powerful, and even in other aspects, the ones expected of them, relationality, sensitivity, emotional expression, these things are constantly degraded and punished as lesser by our patriarchal culture. In honor of Father's Day, Black Liturgies, which is an amazing Instagram account Cameron turned me onto, and I highly recommend you check it out. It's called Black Liturgies, shared this Audre Lorde quote. She wrote, Men who are afraid to feel must keep women around to do their feeling for them while dismissing us for the same supposedly inferior capacity to feel deeply. But this way also men deny themselves their own essential humanity. These different but equal roles cut us into pieces. Our humanity becomes fractured and we are only allowed to express part of what it means to be whole. And then because we feel incomplete, because we have been cut off from ourselves, we are told that we can only become complete by recruiting another person to live out the part of us that has been repressed. When they tell you When they tell you, you will only become whole when you find a partner. You will find your other half. Be suspect. Where has your other half gone? Has it just been repressed? Has it just been cut off from you? Have you just been told you are not allowed to access that part of who you are? Have you been trying to channel the parts of you that you don't feel are allowed into a relationship so someone else can express those things for you? because you don't know how to be whole on your own, because you're not allowed to be. Two, women as uniquely capable of committing sexual sin. This one seems a little weird too, right? Purity culture comes for everyone. Purity culture has this this hyper-legalistic expectation that everyone abstain from sexuality, except when you flip the switch when you're married, then you can be sexy as you want and coy about it um, in a way that like super doesn't work. But I have experienced this um, directly in my community. When I was uh, in Christian intentional community, uh, we were a radically uh, inclusive space there, we were explicitly sex positive, and we got an application for membership from somebody uh, whose details on paper really surprised me. This person um, was a student at the time at Moody Bible College described herself as the oldest of 10 and homeschooled had done uh, missionary work in Africa and she wanted to be a part of our like radical queer informed justice oriented sex positive Christian community and we were like okay you, you come have breakfast with us you tell us what's up And it turns out that she, in college, um, where she was studying at Moody Bible, which is an extremely conservative Christian school in Chicago, had become sexual with her boyfriend, and she didn't have any sex ed, and he didn't have any sex ed, and, you know, whatever. And they got found out somehow. It got to the dean that they had been having sex. And she was suspended and put on all kinds of disciplinary action, had to go to various meetings with um, men in the institution. But he was not. Actually, none of those consequences came for him. And the harassment was so bad for her that she felt like she needed to move off campus. And so she was kind of seeking refuge in our community. How is this possible in this century? It seems so unjust and so silly to have such a double standard. But the logic of purity culture says that women are temptations. Men are subjects. Men get to act. Men get to choose. But women are objects acted upon. And yet, somehow, women are also so powerful as to cause men to, lead, to be led astray and to objectify and sexualize them. So this is more of this weird binary logic and I want to recommend another book, another oldie but goodie actually, um, Rosemary Radford Ruther's Sexism and God Talk. She talks about how kind of a Greek philosophy of dualism really worked its way into our understanding of gender and sin. She talks about the abstract versus the material and how abstract was good and godly and masculine. That men are thought of as soul and mind, incorruptible, holy, intellectual. And women become associated with the body, with the earth, with blood, with birth. Dirty, corrupt, dangerous. They must be controlled. She's an uh, eco-feminist theologian, and so she talks about the way that we have treated the earth and how that is deeply entwined with the way that patriarchy has treated women. That what is of the earth is dangerous and must be controlled and dominated. And so we get to this logic that women are somehow the cause of sexual sin and solely responsible for it, even as they are objects to be acted upon. Three, women as property. Now again, we have this idea that women in ancient days were property owned by their fathers, transferred sometimes for a price, sometimes for political benefit, to men who would become their husbands. This is the the things of the past, right? And yet, (laughs) purity culture loves this loves this. How many young girls are told that they owe their purity not to themselves, but to their father, and then to their abstract, meet-em-someday future husband? Girls are not taught to abstain from sexuality for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the adult men in their lives. The purity balls, take your dad to prom, That kind of weird dynamic, the promises made to the men, the adult men, the cards signed, the rings gifted, it's a really creepy, weird dynamic in which young girls owe their sexual fidelity to their fathers and to their future husbands they haven't met. And ironically, even though these women must be controlled by men, they are also again treated as dangerous and must control themselves And also men. So this is where we get into this super twisty logic, right? Men are in control. Women are dangerous and need to be controlled. So men will control them. Women, though, also need to control themselves. And they need to control men's sexuality. Because men's sexuality is so vulnerable to temptation, to stumbling, This is where we get all of the mandates about women and modesty and covering yourself. Because you could cause a brother to stumble, to be blocked from God. Your flesh, your body, your sexuality is so powerful, so vibrant, so inescapable that men whose self-control is apparently extremely weak are vulnerable to it and you could block them from their holy calling to be pure with God by wearing the wrong spaghetti straps Women are told that they can cause a man to sin sexually, and that it is therefore their responsibility to stop that from happening. So she's not only responsible for her own sexual sin and purity, but for inspiring the sexual sin or purity of men. I mentioned last week that when I was deep in my purity culture uh, community, that I uh, had had been open about the fact that I had had uh, romantic and sexual relationships with women before being a part of this community. And one of the men in my life told me to to never tell anyone that. Specifically though, to never tell men that. Because it might cause them to stumble thinking of me being sexual with a woman. So I was supposed to deny my queerness, my history, my relationships, because it might cause a man to think sexually. Now, we're familiar with some of the ways that this plays out in rape culture, right? What was she wearing? But again, going back to this idea that we are not, any of us, exempt. What is our role we play in this? I want you to think about all of the ways that we subtly in our culture reinforce the ideas both of women as property and women as responsible for the sexuality of men. The idea of the man on the porch with a shotgun being protective about who's going to date his daughter, that's purity culture, that's patriarchal hierarchy. Uh, School dress codes that are always about controlling the bodies of girls and sexualizing girls. That's purity culture and patriarchy. Even conversations that talk about boys as these lustful hormonal monsters that can't be controlled and girls as innocent victims of boys' predatory sexuality— These conversations, these frameworks strip girls of their agency and their sexuality, all the while telling girls to keep their shorts longer and their midriff covered, lest they cause some sort of sin or violation or violence in the boys and men around them. Can you imagine ever telling an adolescent boy to cover up because he was being too provocative or sexual? I can't, but we tell that to girls all the time, all the time. And we are sexualizing girls every time we do that. Even when we have conversations about how daughters reflect on their families, especially on their fathers, we are enforcing purity culture and patriarchy, stripping girls of their agency, and seeing them only as objects of their fathers. And like, I don't want to get too crazy here, but I've definitely experienced even just the phrase, my daughter, in a particular kind of way, right? How, how can we unpack this? This is bad for men and for women, for girls and for boys. This is purity culture. Now we've heard how proponents will bend and twist the Bible to pull it from there. How it could even be argued that it is biblical, but is it Christian? I promised you I'd get to Jesus. (laughs) And and so we're going to do that right now. We're going to get to Jesus, and Jesus turning all of this on its head right now. Okay, so Jesus already, with everything he does, every part of his ministry rejects that first lie of purity logic that women are inferior and naturally subservient. We're not even going to get into this because it's so pervasive in his ministry. I'm just going to bullet list for you. Jesus ate with women at the table, not as sexual objects, which was culturally the only way they were allowed at meals, but as equals who participated in conversation. We just recently talked about Martha and Mary, where Mary was... um, where Mary was welcomed into the teaching conversation with the disciples. And actually, where we unpacked a little bit how uh, Martha was reinforcing patriarchy, right? And we see how Martha, who was deeply oppressed by patriarchy, is also trying to reinforce it. Now, we see this with Jesus and the, at the women at the well, women in teaching roles and leadership, women as financial benefactors of the disciples and the movement. And... <sighs> Remember that this is also the shakiest logic point of all because that Easer stuff, that false stuff, we've, we've unpacked the Genesis part that was already built on lies. But what about women as property? What about women as uniquely capable of sinning sexually? They're, they're, they're pulling from the Ten Commandments there, right? That feels really hard. That feels really hard to object to. And this is where we get to today's scripture the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' favorite, uh, most famous sermon, my favorite, but Jesus' most famous. I mean, people like it. It's a good one. This conversation puts Mosaic Law into space with the love commandment. Love God, love neighbor, love self. And so Jesus is going through the Ten Commandments and other parts of the law in conversation with the love commandment. Love God, love neighbor. This is the heart of all of those commandments. And in this sermon he takes all of those things and deepens and radicalizes them. He says my favorite Jesus phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he's basically saying you guys have this all wrong. You're saying the words out loud, but then you're twisting them and manipulating them and coming to these horrible conclusions that are contrary to the will of God. I will tell you what I mean. Now, Let's return to the text. Can we pop it up there? Now, I want to go to the last page first, the part about divorce. This is one that has been used to oppress a lot of people. This is a scripture that gets plucked out of context to say divorce is always wrong. It has been used to uphold patriarchy, purity culture, uh, et cetera, misogyny, by telling people to stay, especially women, to stay in abusive relationships. This scripture has harmed a lot of people, or I should say the abuse of this scripture has harmed a lot of people. Because what is Jesus actually saying here? Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what Jesus is saying here is men, because men were the only ones who could initiate a divorce, you cannot leave your partner destitute on the street just because you want to. And that was the culture of marriage at the time. A man could say, I don't want to be married to this person anymore. Bye. Here's a certificate. You're on your own. And in a culture where, again, this is property law. This is not about love. This is not about trust. This is not about the things that we see in the Gospels that we now build our sexual and relational and romantic ethics on. This is about property. And women as property were extremely vulnerable. Women could not leave could not get divorced in that context at all. And men could do it on a whim and leave their divorced partners completely vulnerable. And so Jesus is saying, you cannot do that. This is not part of the Ten Commandments. This is just Jesus engaging his own cultural context. He says, you cannot do that. You have a responsibility to the person you are married to and you cannot leave her destitute on the street. Now let's go back to the beginning. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Now we're in the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Whoa. There's so much here, you guys. And we may have heard this enough that we're like, yeah, 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 you know, lust in your heart, all the things. No. We have established that the cultural expectation at the time was that the only people who could commit adultery were women. Is Jesus talking to women here? No. Jesus is talking to men and he's saying you can commit adultery. You are responsible for faithfulness and fidelity. It is not about you having sole access to your property. Jesus says don't commit adultery. Every man who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery. So again, we have taken this scripture and thought, okay, lust, that's about sexual attraction and sexuality. That's about the feelings I get at night. (laughs) These are the conversations in youth group where it's like, ooh, you know, don't, you better not, you know, think too hard about anything. But if you happen to wake up uh, having a really, had a really nice dream night, you know, that's fine. No, this is not about sexual urges or fantasy. This is about objectification This is the heart of women as property. Jesus is saying, women are not your sexual objects. And if you, even in your heart, treat a woman that way, lust after a woman as a sexual object, predate on a woman as your sexual object, you are violating the core commandments, the Ten Commandments, and the heart of them to love God and love neighbor. This is about men objectifying women. Jesus is yelling at any dudes in earshot, women are not your sexual objects. It is your responsibility to stop objecting the women in your life. And he goes on and he's like, if you can't do that, if you can't stop objectifying the women in your life, you better rip out your own damn eye before I hear you tell her to put on a sweater. It's a completely radical shift in responsibility. Jesus is saying that men are responsible for the sexualization of women, not women. And it is not a woman's responsibility to control men's sexuality. It's men's. And sexualization is about objectifying a person. It's not about the intimate sexual connection that two equals can have as mutual consenting partners. This lust that he's talking about it's about dehumanizing people for your own sexual gratification, reducing them to less than equal. Jesus is saying here, women are not property. Men, they are not here to serve your needs. Men, they are not responsible for keeping you from becoming sexual or violent. Women are not your helpmate. They are not yours. Jesus has flipped all of this on, his head, on its head. Women are people, and people deserve mutuality, respect, boundaries. People deserve to be sexual human beings without being reduced to sex objects. Women and girls do not belong to men, and therefore are entitled to their own expression, their bodies, their sexualities, and agency. And importantly, men and boys are capable of respecting women and girls and of having a sexuality that's not objectifying or predatory, And if they're falling into objectifying, predatory, or hierarchical patterns, it is their responsibility, not the women and girls in their lives, to fix it. Pluck out your own damn eye. This is consistent with the Gospels. This is the Jesus we know who examines power and hierarchy, the systems of oppression, and says, hey... This system of hierarchical power over it's not godly, it's not holy, it's not love, and it's not pure. Jesus is turning it on its head. And all that we have done as a modern culture is say, ooh, Jesus doesn't want you to touch yourself at night. That is not what is in this text. And, and di- misdirecting the text to understand uh, sexuality or sexual urges or the desire to be sexual with a partner as evil is a, is a purposeful redirection from a radical feminist text that says women are not property and men are responsible for the sexuality of men. Our Jesus is wild, y'all, all <laughs> And Jesus was saying this in the midst of a culture that was even more bold, even more obvious, even more unapologetic about its rape culture and purity culture than ours is. So we can, we can lean, as Jesus did, on the foundational scriptures to defend the holiness of sexuality and the mutuality of godly, loving, sexual relationships. We can lean on our Jesus and our scriptures to say that patriarchy and purity culture are trash, but that a godly, loving sexual relationship is one of mutuality and trust where human beings come together in the wholeness of who they are, not cut off from their sensitivity or gentleness or feelings, not come, cut, cut off from their power and agency, and no one cut off from their beautiful, holy, sexual bodies. We come as whole beings to one another. A mutual relationship requires the fullness of being And God wants us to have nice things. I want you to keep coming back to that refrain as we did last week. Whenever you're thinking about purity culture, I want you to remind yourself that your God wants you to have nice things, wants you to have mutual love, wants you to have a full range of emotions and feelings and choices, wants you to feel in touch with your body and your sexuality, wants your boundaries to be honored. God wants you to have nice things. Purity culture does not. Will you pray with me? God, our helper. God, our companion. Continue to be with us as we examine the ways that patriarchy and purity culture have woven themselves into our frameworks. Help us to uproot them Help us to shed our role in the system, to undermine the system with a reorientation towards who you are and who we are. God, may you make us powerful. God, may you you make us whole. And God, may you help us to have nice things for ourselves and for one another. In your name we pray, amen.